American president, not a president of red America, blue America, but of all America. And I believe it's my duty, my duty to level with you, to tell the truth, no matter how difficult, no matter how painful. And here, in my view, is what is true. MAGA Republicans do not respect the Constitution. They do not believe in the rule of law. They do not recognize the will of the people. They refuse to accept the results of a free election. And they're working right now, as I speak, in state after state, to give power to decide elections in America to partisans and cronies, empowering election deniers to undermine democracy itself. MAGA forces are determined to take this country backwards, backwards to an America where there is no right to choose, no right to privacy, no right to contraception, no right to marry who you love. They promote authoritarian leaders and they fan the flames of political violence that are a threat to our personal rights, to the pursuit of justice, to the rule of law, to the very soul of this country. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa podcast. Standing outside of Independence Hall in Philadelphia, in a speech that some folks would call vintage Joe Biden, he called out right-wing extremists and said there's no place in America for political violence. He said that most Republicans are okay, he'll work with them, but that MAGAs and Trump, who he mentioned by name, are not. It was all very simple. He declared what some of us have known for a while. We are a nation at war, fighting for the soul of democracy, to quote the president. Patriotism, liberty, justice for all, hope, possibilities. We are still, at our core, a democracy. And yet, history tells us the blind loyalty to a single leader and a willingness to engage in political violence is fatal to democracy. For a long time, we've told ourselves that American democracy is guaranteed, but it's not. We have to defend it, protect it, stand up for it, each and every one of us. That's why tonight, I'm asking our nation to come together, unite behind the single purpose of defending our democracy regardless of your ideology. But we are fighting with Trump who embodies something that most Americans have never encountered. That's pure fucking evil. Which ironically is what the MAGAs were calling Biden Thursday night after his speech. Like Trump, MAGAs can't help projecting their bullshit onto the rest of us. We are not powerless in the face of these threats. We are not bystanders in this ongoing attack on democracy. There are far more Americans, far more Americans, from every, from every background of belief, who reject the extreme MAGA ideology than those that accept it. During a brilliant interview after the speech, Don Lemon, perhaps the only guy left at CNN who will still insist on the truth, confronted conservative pundit Scott Jennings for interpreting Biden's position as totally anti-Republican. Which it isn't, but Jennings yammered, there's the MAGA Republicans that Biden hates, and then the Republicans he claims that he can work with. 
But his speech was saying you shouldn't be voting for any Republicans, right? Biden wasn't asking anyone to vote Republican because as long as MAGAs are running the show, they are a threat to democracy that Biden was warning us against. Okay, Scott, listen. No, 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 listen. The former president every single day talks shit about everybody, including other presidents, including members of his own party, probably you on CNN, and now everybody is all of a sudden they've got the vapors about one statement that Joe Biden made in the entire year and a half of his presidency. And it was inevitable that Republicans would call the speech partisan because Joe was calling them out for their unpopular positions on abortion, their support of rogue Supreme Court, and their false claim that January 6th was a legitimate protest. We can't be pro-insurrectionist and pro-American. They're incompatible, Biden said. But according to the Washington Post, only 13% of Republicans agree with them. The President Biden we saw last night was really every inch Joe Biden the politician. His speech was a very cynical attempt yep. um, to, to fill our heads with stupid. We are just two months out of the midterms and Biden kicked off campaign season on the offensive. Well, fucking hallelujah giving Americans a healthy dose of the truth and making the case that voting for Democrats is a return to normalcy. There are weak and beatable MAGA candidates in at least six races nationwide. And if Sarah Palin's recent defeat in Ruby Red Alaska to Democrat Mary Patola is any indication, Americans may be ready for a return to civility or at least something like that. Partly because it's also another celebrity kind of quasi-freak show candidate that comes from the Trump tradition, the Trump mold, that voters seem to be showing time and time again they're pretty sick of. But if Republicans win back control of the House in November, we will have dipshit Kevin fucking McCarthy to contend with. And if he becomes Speaker, you can bet he'll sideline or even disband the January 6th committee investigating the attack. Trump has even promised that if elected, he'll issue pardons and demand apologies for the violent insurrectionists currently on trial or already in jail. So much for fucking law and order. But this week, a former New York cop got the stiffest sentence yet. 10 years for beating Capitol Police with a flagpole. Another rioter pled guilty Thursday to attacking officers with chemical spray including Officer Brian Sicknick, who collapsed and died the next day. To think about the future of the GOP, what decade from the past does it look like? I would, I would say 50s. 50s? 50s. 1850s? Yeah. 1950s. 1950s. Okay, so 1950s. Yeah. Not slavery, yeah. 1850s, but yeah. pre-civil rights, 1960s. Yep. That's like the sweet spot. It's a happy medium. It's a happy medium. Yeah. Things are separate. Ruling from one of his golf courses, the diaper Don had taped into white rage, and boy is it paying off. It's hard to fight someone who has no scruples, no fucking morals. Trump is a compulsive fucking liar, an incomprehensible narcissist, and a cult leader who has brainwashed millions. The MAGAs are his army, and they're chomping at the bit for a civil war because that's the only way they can dub Trump King of America. I mean, fuck it. Democracy be damned. I'm not playing with him. He's a Trump supporter. Never play with a Trump supporter. Oh, yeah. See him around town with that hat. Make America great again. 
I don't need that crap. If you get fired in a corporate setting, your desk is empty by security and you're escorted off the premises. At least that's what we used to do at the Trump org. There's a reason for that. Pissed off ex-employees might want to steal corporate secrets on their way out. And even though Trump had just attempted a coup, he avoided the perp walk because he was a former president. And this is America, where transitions of power used to be norm. But we underestimated Trump at every turn. He's so much worse than we imagined. And I will guarantee you, he's already used those stolen documents for his own gain. Somehow made copies and sent them to God knows who. I mean, check Bedminster next and don't let him leave the country. First, we thought it was just some documents in Mar-a-Lago. Then we learned it was highly classified documents. Then we learned that it was human sources and signals intelligence, some of our crown jewels. Then we learned he didn't return the documents when the archives asked for them. Then we learned the Justice Department had to get a grand jury subpoena for these documents. Then we learned that his lawyer certified that they had responded to the grand jury and turned over the documents when they hadn't. Um, and now we're learning that 43 folders were found with classified information, bearing classified markings, but that were empty, and then a whole bunch more with military information. And I just have been racking my brain. I can't think of any good reason Trump would have 43 empty classified folders uh, that were completely uh, empty. And that evidence is extremely concerning. Friday, U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon released a detailed inventory of documents from the search at Mar-a-Lardo that were previously under seal. Amongst them were 11,000 non-classified government documents, all mixed in with various other junk, press clippings, etc. But just from the August 8th haul alone, there were 18 documents marked top secret, 54 marked secret, and 31 marked confidential. Weirder still are the empty top secret files. I mean, the real question we need to ask is where the fuck are they? I'm starting with you, David, because if this were law and order, which I love so much, if this were law and order, uh, the cops would start looking at this. They'd look at the motive. They'd look at all sorts of things. And then they'd see this guy's got a bit of a rap sheet. So they'd go to somebody who knew him before, right? When before he was president. We know all this stuff from 2016. You know him from before. So if people came to you and said, hey, this guy who you know, who you've written about, had all this stuff in his, uh, in his, at his place. What do you make of it? What would you have said? Well, Donald fits perfectly the law and order model of the mobster who, along with his family, has never been caught. They've returned Trump's passports, but not some of his clothing, which says to me that the DOJ is doing a forensic investigation that will connect Trump to the crime. A special master will slow down the process, but this isn't like an overdue library book or a problem filling out some paperwork. Meanwhile, Team Trump said a special master must be appointed because we need to lower the temperature on both sides. We need to take a deep breath. From the man who brought you calls of targeted violence against FBI agents a plea for everybody to just please get along. This is a case of espionage, of obstruction and more. And for the country to heal, we need to see him indicted, perp walked and imprisoned. And not because he's a political enemy of the current president or the fact that I fucking hate him, but because he's a fucking criminal.
The DOJ has hinted that next steps in the case will include additional witness interviews and the formation of a grand jury. I mean, come on, let's all rejoice. Good times. Speaking of grand juries, last Friday, Trump's White House legal eagles, Pat Cipollone and Patrick Philbin, sat before a grand jury investigating crimes related to January 6th. So I think the difference between Congress and the Justice Department is that Congress acts in generalities, right? These folks don't do this every day. They conduct congressional investigations, work in generalities. When the DOJ gets involved and they start asking questions, they're going to have facts and evidence that probably that the that the January 6th committee didn't and they may have information that January 6th committee didn't and they also you know are going to ask more specific questions and get that information in before the grand jury i think that's just that's what they do that's their job it's much different than the a, a, a congressional investigation or a congressional hearing you know where it's being held by elected officials these folks are career prosecutors and folks that are trained to do this part of the investigation in amongst other things examine the conduct of the former president and the people around him, including campaign lawyers and other operatives who helped organize fake electors in seven battleground states in a scheme to keep Trump in office despite losing the election. Trump learned in New York City media that churning works. Huh. You, know, you, you do something this morning and by this afternoon you do something else and by this evening you do something else and everybody's busy tra running around chasing each other. And it's, he's done it his whole career, since the 1980s. And in a development I'm not sure anyone saw coming, Newt Gingrich has been invited to chat with the January 6th committee because apparently he was part of the plot to steal the 2020 election. Newt somehow connected to a strategy to run false ads questioning the validity of the election. I mean, it's like Dallas and who shot fucking JR? The January 6th committee hearings are primetime drama that has all of us on the edge of our seats. JR, I'm gonna ask you for the last time. Return that money to me. Well, you know I can't do that. JR, I'm warning you. I'm gonna see to it that this is the last crooked deal you ever pull. And now for the main event. Today we welcome to the show my old friend and former attorney, Danya Perry. Danya is a founding partner at Perry Guha LLP. She is a nationally recognized white collar criminal defense attorney and a commercial litigator. Danya is equally gifted at litigating high profile matters in court and in the presses she is at navigating back channels to obtain quiet victories for her clients. Danya has represented corporations and individuals from every walk of life, and her criminal defense practice includes representing clients in cases involving everything from fraud to sexual assault of both men and women. Prior to founding Perry Guha with Samit Guha in 2019, Danya spent five years as the Chief of Litigation and Deputy General Counsel at McAndrews and Forbes Incorporated. From 2002 to 2013, Danya served as an assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of New York. Today, she is a regular media commentator on MSNBC, CNN, and BBC. She also writes a number of op-eds with articles, including for the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, the New York Daily News, and Law 360. 
She is a champion sub three hour marathon and a proud single mother of three. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so I'm here today with somebody who's very important to me, right? Been very important in my life. In fact, Danya Perry, who was my lawyer, is actually the lawyer that had me removed from the unlawful incarceration back to Otisville, something that I talk about a lot here on Maya Culpa. But before we get into that, because we will talk about that, we're going to talk about Judge Alvin K. Hellerstein's decision, my now lawsuit against the U.S. government. I have a couple of other questions that I'd like to, you know, to throw at you first. So again, welcome, Danya. It's really great to have you on Maya Culpa. Thank you, now, Michael. At, at long last, I've been waiting and waiting patiently, but glad to be here. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> glad to have you. Now, we recently interviewed Zelina Maxwell, and she reminded me how much sexism has defined so many women's careers. Now, law and politics in particular. Now, you're very successful. I mean, you're brilliant. But I imagine that you've dealt with the negative impacts of sexism in your work. Because we all know Manhattan is a progressive, I mean, Manhattan's progressive politically, but sexism is pervasive. And it appears the more powerful a woman, the more flack she'll likely endure. Has you, you know, has, have you had that type of an experience? Yes and no. I know that's, that's a hedge. Um, it, is, it is fairly pervasive, particularly in the trial lawyer world. It's, it's a macho world. It's a male-dominated world and an alpha male dominated world at that. Um, and that's the world I grew up in. Um, the U.S. Attorney's Office, when I was a general crime star, which is the junior unit there, was I think maybe 70% men, maybe a little less than that. Um, and so I, I've kind of gotten used to it and developed a very thick skin. You know, were there judges who would comment on my dress uh, there was there was a defendant at one point who said I put the cute and prosecutor. I mean, stuff like that. But that's the kind of stuff you can brush off and and put to the side and put your nose down and do your job. Um, it, you know, in some ways, working at the U.S. Attorney's Office was the, a jackpot for me because they really do believe in, you know, in, in, in minorities, women, diverse lawyers, they, they want to, you know, prop us up in a sense and give us equal opportunities. So each of my three pregnancies and I, I returned after maternity leave and was promoted each time. Just that just happenstance. But the point is that it, it was an environment where I was able to thrive. And I'd say since then, I've turned it into an asset as much as I can. Usually I like it if people don't notice that I'm a woman, but I get that sometimes they do. And I I, I use that as much as I can. I, I know that there are cases that I get because there just aren't that many trial lawyers out there who also happen to be women. And sometimes, you know, co-counsel or a defendant will notice oh, wow, there might actually be women on my jury and we have, you know, a team of seven men. So maybe we should diversify a little bit, um, you know, so that the, the jury, you know, can look over and, 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 and see that, you know, we're well represented. And that's, you know, that's okay. I think, um, you know, expression that one of my mentors, uh, a, a woman named Kathleen Rice, who is a congresswoman who worked with me on the Moreland Commission, would always say, just fake it till you make it. You know, she went in and ran for district attorney, 
out of nowhere and won. And so it's that kind of, I'll say moxie, you know, that, that I, I won't say balls <laughs> specifically, but you know, you gotta, you gotta maybe have a little, a little extra moxie and put yourself out there a little bit more and, you know, just not, um, you know, just, just take it as it goes and, and let it, kind of slide as, as much as you can. Yeah, I, listen, I certainly understand. I, I don't think it's proper that they would comment about your dress. I'll tell you a funny story. When I first started practicing law in 1991, what I was you know thrust into a trial. It was a medical malpractice case. And I went down to the courthouse over here at Center Street and was prepared to you know move forward with the trial. And I had long hair at the time, so I had my hair in a ponytail, and I had this very long black silk, you know, jacket that, you know, went down. It was a jacket that was over my suit, and the judge turned around when I stood up, and I approached the bench, and he looked at me, he goes, the fuck do you think you are, James Woods? And that movie, True Believer, had recently come out, where he had the, but he was a total mess, uh, but he turned around and he goes, I'm going to tell you what. He goes, I'm going to sanction you for your appearance. And he did. I think he sanctioned me like 100 bucks. Not only did he sanction me, he postponed the trial until I got a haircut. And I got rid of the ridiculous jacket, as he said. There's no courtroom theatrics in this place. I don't know. I thought I was true believer, right? I'm going to a picture of that, Michael. <laughs> You know, well, look at how. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, I certainly understand when they want to comment about what it is that you're wearing. Now, Danya, let me ask you this. White collar crime. I mean, that's your specialty. And I know that you co-authored Trump on trial for the Brookings Institute. So you must have an opinion about how the January 6th hearings have gone so far. And further. Do you predict that the Department of Justice will ever prosecute the former president and his cronies for the multitude of crimes committed, not just on January 6th, but across the board? I think the select committee has done a remarkable job marshalling the evidence together, organizing it in digestible segments for a the electorate, really. And uh making it all make sense, having very relatable, believable witness. I mean, witness, witnesses, witness after witness, you know, I think they're so believable. Well, first, because they're telling the truth, but also because I think to a person, they came from Trump world, Trump's, you know, whether his inner circle or just true believers. Um, And so that's, that's, you know, kind of the inside baseball, the inside information, it's, it's, you know, they're not quite cooperating witnesses, but that's what, you know, that's where you need to get the information, the evidence from. And that's where it came from. And and I think they came across very well. I think Vice Chairwoman Liz Cheney in particular is an excellent prosecutor. Um, I guess she's going to be looking for another job. So maybe that's a career avenue for her. But, you know, had just been crisp, clear, and, you know, not not wasting any time. I, you know, maybe there were a couple opening um, remarks that maybe were a little long and windy, but for the most part, every single piece of testimony, every document, every demonstrative was additive and made sense and, 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 and gave more, you know, um, 
flesh fleshed out that you know the skeletons uh, that that we all had known from news reports, but of course put more flesh on the bones as well. So I, I think they've done a remarkable job. You know, the next question whether they will prosecute, I, I certainly think I'm I'm certain we'll get to this, Michael. The uh, the recent search warrant that was executed in Mar-a-Lago. And the crimes that were the, the, the predication for that, that we'll put that to the side because, I mean, I certainly think that's the most likely prosecution that we'll see. Um, you know, I just don't know at this point. I think that there's plenty of evidence to support plenty of charges, um, you know, in ordinary circumstances. I'd say, yes, there is more than enough here, not only to bring an indictment, but to sustain a conviction. But this is these are not ordinary circumstances. Clearly, the attorney general is, is a deliberative person who is thinking in um, broad picture terms. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, 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 I guess it's a separate question. I think there's enough, but, but will that be enough for this Department of Justice? I think it's anybody's guess. Right. But, Don, you're an incredibly talented and brilliant um, attorney. Started with the, you know, U.S. Attorney's Office, right, over at the Southern District. Um, So you have a better comprehension and a better understanding of exactly how this thing moves forward, whether or not somebody like Merrick Garland would ultimately do it. Because we're not seeing that with say, the likes of an Alvin Bragg. We're also not seeing it over at the Southern District of New York. Now, you'll remember that there were about a dozen sealed indictments that the Southern District had in regard to the Stormy Daniels payoff, something that I ended up uh, you know, pleading guilty to. And that is the crime that I committed. The rest, as I talk about in my book, Revenge, um, they're all lies that were pushed upon me. And you and I have had this conversation a multitude of times. But my question really to you is, we're not seeing it from Alvin Bragg. I see Fan, you know, Fannie Willis uh, is all over that, and you know, that's fantastic. And we see Tish James, uh, but that's a civil matter, not criminal, though it could turn criminal. We're just not seeing, for example, the low-hanging fruit um, that they could have already indicted Trump on. They could have already convicted him. I mean, Mark Pomerantz and Carrie Dunn, two seasoned lawyers, especially Pomerantz. Carrie Dunn is a great lawyer. Don't get me wrong. But Mark Pomerantz has been doing this for, what, 50-plus years? They both resigned because Alvin Bragg refused to prosecute or to indict Trump for the crimes that now they've indicted and are going to be holding Alan Weisselberg accountable for. So it's once again, Trump skates and those around him, like myself, get thrown under the bus. If you were Merrick Garland, because I know my answer, if I was Merrick Garland, I would have indicted this asshole a long time ago, right? And I would have him, you know, up there and if somehow or another he escaped, I'd indict him for the next crime that he committed. And I would just keep going. What would you do? When when I was trained at the U.S. Attorney's Office, we we were taught not to consider, and it's in the Justice Manual, that's the guidebook for prosecutors, we were taught not to consider political factors or popularity or external factors. We were to look at the facts and the law and determine if we thought this was a sustainable case. 
of course I know exactly. And as you pointed out, we've talked about this many times, you know, individual one is not prosecuted, but the person who individual one, you know, got to help him accomplish his goals um, is the only person who was prosecuted. We see, as you said, in the DA's office investigation, you know, Mark Pomerantz was a mentor of mine way back in the day when I started. One of the best lawyers and most thoughtful and has the best judgment of just about any lawyer I know. And Agreed. I think Dunn is, is another one. And, you know, they came to uh, their own judgment. Alvin Bragg, who who is an old friend and colleague of mine came to a different one. And, and in, in, in each of these cases, there's clearly uh, maybe, I don't know if anyone's articulating this, but a, a different standard of proof, a super standard, you know, I, with a lot to, to indict a case, it, you, you know, this, the standard proof is, is not beyond a reasonable doubt. It's, you know, it's a little, you know, wishy-washy it's, but it, you know, it's, it's probable cause or, or more than that, but you know, effectively more than that, because you want more than that. You want to make sure you can actually um, win the case. But here it, it it seems to be well beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, you know, beyond any shadow of a doubt, maybe. And, and it's not even doubt. It's also, can we convince a jury of 12 unanimously to convict? Because if we don't, if we, you know, take a shot at the king and miss, you know, there goes everything. And so it is a different standard, I think. And you know, if if I were Merrick Garland, I, you know, it's it's impossible to really put myself in the in in the shoes. I'd I'd like to say that I would look just as you know we were taught to do from you know as baby prosecutors, we're taught to look at the law and the facts and assess those equally. That no person is above the law. That everyone is to be treated the same under the law. I'd like to think I would do that, but you know there are considerations, prudential ones. I'm sure political ones and. He is, you know, he's he's got a weight on his shoulders that I would not want for myself. So it's easy for me to sidestep this question. And, and I guess at the end of the day, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. OK. And I'll accept that from you. Right. My problem that I have with Alvin Bragg, and I know he's a colleague and we're very critical of him on Maya culpa because the guy came in to office seven weeks. He's in he's in office and he makes a determination, which is contrary to the likes of both Carrie Dunn and Mark Pomerantz, who we both acknowledge are phenomenal, phenomenal, qualified and diligent lawyers who had been working on this case for two years. They knew this case. Those two know this case better than anybody else. And if their opinion is that we should indict, and I believe that we will get an incarceration, I believe Alvin Bragg, and again, this is purely my conjecture, is that he was more concerned about winning the case than he was about prosecuting the case. And, you know, I know that there are a couple of judges that are out there and they're very vocal about how the system needs to be revamped. But one of the problems that you have is as a prosecutor, your job is not to convict. The prosecutor's job is to prosecute. And I think we could all, especially my listeners, we can all acknowledge that Trump has broken the law in a multitude of ways. When you deflate your assets for tax benefit, but yet you overinflate them for benefits um, like lower insurance costs, lower um, you know, um, loan uh, costs, and so on, 
That's a crime in and of itself, not to mention probably all the cash that was stored, and that's things that Weisselberg is going to have to talk about and so on. This tax evasion, like Al Capone, let's go after the small stuff. Let's go after the low-hanging fruit if you're so worried about a conviction. But for some unknown reason, Bragg took the exact opposite approach, and he allowed two seasoned attorneys who had been working on this for two years to resign after only being invested in the office for seven weeks and yet know nothing about the case. What what do you think is going on there? What's wrong there? I, so I don't think it's it's you know particular to Alvin Bragg. I think look, it, some of the 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 crimes to which Weisselberg just pled have federal implications as well. He pled guilty to evading state, local, and federal taxes. That would be an easy case for the feds to make. They haven't. They don't want to go near it uh, for whatever reason, and, and we're not privy to them. There may be. Well, 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 well actually, we do know, Danya, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but we do know when Alan Weisselberg testified to the Southern District of New York, and that's you know, those two assholes, Tom McKay and Nick Roos and the whole group of them, the Andrea Griswolds. I talk about them all in the book. I mean, we really lay this out for you. Alan Weisselberg, it was suspected that he was lying to them about me. Nevertheless, they took that information. They used that information against me to a grand jury, right? And then they gave him partial immunity. So I believe that's why the Southern District is not prosecuting him, because they gave him right limited immunity based off of lies. And if they did prosecute him, those lies would come out and it would expose their either ineptitude or their intent, both of which fall really and are a disgrace to the profession of law. Well, that that would make sense, and in, in the in the broader sense, it makes no sense at all. Like everything you've just said, it, you know, if accurate, and I know you've you've uh, foiled some documents, if accurate is is bizarro land, and 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 not the criminal justice system that we all you know believe we have or hope we have. Um, so, um, you know, I, so. That, but that would explain why they haven't gone after Weisselberg or anybody else, perhaps. I mean, it, you know, it is um, – I agree it's it's surprising. Usually the, you know, U.S. attorney or the district attorney gives a lot of deference to the line prosecutors and the supervisors. And here we had, you know, some real veterans. So, um, you know, I'm certainly not privy to the deliberative process that what – Factors went into Alvin Bragg's judgment, um, but at the end of the day, you know, he concluded that it wasn't a case that he was comfortable ringing on his watch. But what you know, we'll see in October if the if the Trump Organization trial um, in the District Attorney's Office uh, prosecution goes forward in October, and Weisselberg testifies. You know, he's he has allocated. He's he's pled guilty to uh, conspiracy, right? And who did he conspire with? There is another person, at least, on the other side of it. You can't conspire with yourself, obviously, or or with a inanimate, you know, with a company. So who was it? You know, I think there will be some things that will come out that um, will be, uh, I think, could add to 
um, you know, this mix here. And, you know, maybe Alvin has said that the investigation continues. Maybe something will come out. Maybe, you know, if nothing else, all of what, you know, will come out in that trial can be used by, you mentioned Tish James, the attorney general's civil enforcement action can all be used there. And frankly, that might be what she's waiting for to to bring her complaint because it seems to be all wrapped up. She said the last step would be uh, Donald Trump's deposition, which, you know, we know happened right after the uh, the search at Mar-a-Lago and he um, took the fifth, which can be used against him. So mm-hmm. she's got a lot of, uh, of remedies at her disposal if she meets her burden of proof, which of course, you know, is just, is, is a much lower one than in criminal court. And if she does, she can seek the corporate death penalty to dissolve the organization. She can seek massive fines uh, and other penalties. So, you know, that's, that's, it's, that's obviously different than, you know, a criminal prosecution where liberty is at stake, but that could be certainly a death blow to the company. Yeah, and it would be a death blow. But if I was the attorney, if I was the prosecutor in the DA's case, and um, I'm asking Alan Weisselberg a series of questions regarding this upcoming October uh, case against the Trump organization, first question I'm going to ask him, did you or did you not get authorization to do X, Y, and Z from Donald Trump? Now, if he says no, it's a lie. And they already know that it's a lie because they have not just my testimony or Jen Weisselberg's, but they also have it from uh, uh, Mazur, the accounting firm. They have it from probably Makani, and they probably have it from Calamari and a slew of other people that they have already uh, spoken to. So it's interesting how he or the press keeps making these statements, these blanket statements that Alan Weisselberg will not be cooperating in a case against Donald Trump. People don't understand. The Trump organization, Trump's eponymous company, is owned by him. He is the president's CEO. He makes every single decision. Nobody was ever authorized to do anything without his say-so. And most of those documents have a little D or a Donald next to it in order to remind him in the event things go wrong that he's the one that authorized us and told us to do it. So I'm not really sure how Alan then or how the press will turn around and say that he's not cooperating against Donald. I, I think it's like, you know, one half dozen of the other. It's a, it's an interesting plea agreement and, and a highly unusual one in, in my experience. And it's a very delicate dance for Weiselberg. You know, I agree with you. He So he committed himself to testifying truthfully at the Trump Organization trial, but he has supposedly, according to media reports, and, and, you know, it's clear enough in the fact that there's been no indictment of Donald Trump, you know, he's always said, well, I don't have information against him. But, you know, if the DA has evidence that he's lying about that, then, you know, maybe it wasn't enough to bring, if he's not willing to testify, they can't use him, of course, as a witness, but they do have enough perhaps to show that he's perjured himself and to tear up that plea agreement. And then that, you know, that sentence that they they agreed upon of five months is, is out the window. And so he's got, you know, the downside, but none of the benefits to that plea agreement. So that's going to be a really tough needle for him to thread. I, I bet he's banking on 
the fact of his plea um, leading inexorably to the Trump organization pleading guilty as well. So I don't know, but, you know, according to media reports, immediately after his, he entered his plea, you know, the, the organization threw him a birthday party. So yeah, it, I heard that it's like too. no one's sweating, <laughs> but I, I think there's all of them should be. Weisselberg should be and everyone at Trump organization who knew anything about this should should be as well. Yeah, well, I agree. So since we were talking about the Brookings Institute, which you helped to pen that document, I mean, the strongest cases against Trump on the 6th are probably conspiracy to defraud the United States and um, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. And lots of the January 6th rioters have been convicted on similar charges. If Trump is charged, he'll deny even knowing that he lost the election. I mean, that's what he's going to say. I have no idea. Quite frankly, I have no idea what you're talking about. I had nothing to do with it, right? So is Trump's best defense for January 6th insanity? You know, I, I've said this, you know, I, I've been asked a lot and there's been a lot of, you know, chatter about, well, he's just going to say he, you know, he legitimately believed he won. But that is not an actual legal defense. You're right. That defense actually would be criminal insanity because you can't pretend not to know what is immediately obvious to you and to everyone around you. And we've now heard testimony in those committee hearings from witness after witness who, you know, close legal, political, familial advisors, everyone telling him, hey, you lost. There was no fraud. So for him to believe, to continue to believe that something is so, you know, you can believe that, you know, the earth is flat, but all evidence tells you otherwise, you know, it then that's that that doesn't help you. That doesn't get you on then, then yes, you are actually insane. Um, and so I, I mean, obviously, that's not something that I think he's he's going to mount as, as a defense, but that is exactly what it comes down to. Yeah, well, look, one of the things that if I was still within the Trump camp in this circle, which I'm so thankful that I'm not, but if I was, I would have turned around right off the bat and told Rudy Kaludi, drunken Giuliani, to shut the fuck up. Right. First of all, when he came out and he made statements that Trump declassified the documents right off the bat, what did he do? He acknowledged that Trump knew that the documents were there, which is now going to go against the Trump defense, which is always the defense. I just didn't know because he could have then turned around and said, listen, I'm fat and I got a bad back. I didn't pack the boxes. I didn't know what was in there. I actually never even opened them. I thought that they were just stuffed mementos and so on. I put them down in the storage facility at Mar-a-Lago, but I had no idea. Rudy's statements destroy that, but so did Donald. He then ruined it as well when the first thing that came out of his mouth was, I declassified them. Well, you declassified what, you dope? You declassify documents that you're now going to claim that you didn't know that you had, right? And so, and what would have made it even worse had he actually done that would have been the fact that they found some of the top secret documents in his office. So, I mean, the guy doesn't think. None of the people that are around him are like you, Danya. None of them are competent. That's for sure. They have no idea what they're doing. And worse than that, they've now destroyed 
possibly the only one defense that could have kept him out of trouble. And I believe it's the same thing with the January 6th, you know, and with now Tish James and the DA and everybody else. He just, they just say things that destroy their own case. Now, there's rumors, let's just talk about Tish James for a second. Um, there's rumors that New York Attorney General Tish James is getting ready to take legal action against Trump after that exhaustive, I mean, exhaustive, three-year investigation. And I think that you've even spoken about this case recently to Chris Smith at Vanity Fair. Would you do me a favor? Share with my, with my listeners what you know about how Tish James is progressing and where you think this case will ultimately go. Yeah, it, it's as you said, it's an investigation, three years in the making, um, stymied time after time by you know, the obfuscation and delay tactics of, of the, the Trump uh, putative defendants. So it has gone up and down court systems and there's been delay after delay, but um, it, it, it appears to have finally come to a head. Um, this is, you know, this was the companion case to the DA's criminal investigation that appears to have faded away or gone away forever. And it, it yeah, as, as, as you've said, it, you know, it, it, it was looking at um, statements that were made that, you know, valuations, for example, of different assets that, you know, were pumped up for certain purposes and, you know, reduced for others uh, all to, you know, advantage, financial advantage. And um, she has gotten, you know, I, I, I knew at some point, but, you know, doc, many documents, I think there are millions, I believe, um, and um, taken a lot of testimony, including that of the former president and his three children and uh, Weiselberg, several of whom have um, taken the fifth, you know, hundreds of times, including the former president. And she has said that is the last step in her investigation. They otherwise have everything that they need. Um, Trump was compelled after being sanctioned um, for contempt uh, for not turning over documents. He was compelled to turn over documents. I mean, this seems to be a pattern of obstruction that, that maybe now is finally, finally, you know, coming to haunt him in a, in a real way. And we'll get to that, I'm sure. Um, and so, you know, I believe, I, I think she's probably done with the investigation and is ready to file what's called an enforcement action. It's really just a civil mm -hmm. complaint. I think she's probably ready to do it. As she said, the last piece is now in place. And, um, and, and, you know, she is only, her case has only gotten better after that final deposition where former President Trump took uh, the fifth, you know, time after time, I think hundreds of times, uh, because that, unlike in criminal court where you're not, you cannot be compelled to testify against yourself. That's not the same in 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 a civil case where an adverse inference, you know, a bad inference essentially can be drawn against the invoker. So I, I think she's probably ready to go, but perhaps is waiting. I think it would be probably shrewd for her to await the Trump Organization criminal trial that uh, will be playing out in state Supreme Court in October uh, to see if there's any more nuggets that she can get from that. You know, she can use Weisselberg's uh, plea allocution um, and 
but there may be testimony that will come out or, or, or exhibits because she doesn't have access to the grand jury materials um, because she's on the civil side and they don't carry over. So um, so that may be all that she's waiting for. And as I said before, the penalties could be astronomical. I mean, they could be fatal in this case to the organization and also to individuals who if there's individual findings of, of liability. Well, let me then ask you a follow-up to it, because let's move it more into a national stage, going back to January 6th, because Attorney General Merrick Garland has been, and you have called this many, many times, both on television, in the Brookings, and even now on this podcast, that Merrick Garland has been very careful uh, and measured in his approach to managing the DOJ, perhaps because and this is my supposition, perhaps because he's trying to rehabilitate the reputation of the Justice Department after Trump and Bill Barr destroyed it. And you know a lot about that. And we're going to really get into that one. What's your take on Garland's handling of the search and seizure um, of the stolen documents at Mar-a-Lardo? Um, I think he's handled himself remarkably well um, under under you know, tremendous pressure. Um yeah, I, I agree. I think he, he was publicly said that, you know, he wants to bring the Department of Justice back to what it was not, you know, he, he is not the president's lawyer as Bill Barr styled himself. He is he's the lawyer for all of us and is not going to play politics, is not going to go after enemies uh, about which, you know, a lot or, you know, help his friends. And so but, you know, I think a lot of people have perceived that he's bent over so far the other way as to, you know, make a complete loop and, um, you know, has has failed to go after folks who, who otherwise would have, you know, been pursued. Um, but with Mar-a-Lago, he, he has acted a little, you know, differently than we've seen. He, he made a very unusual uh, public statement. I think he had to do that because, I, you know, there, there were questions and, and um, you know, there's frankly, safety risks and 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 people were going after Trump supporters were going after you know the the good women and men of the FBI and and the DOJ and so I think he made an important statement and he's obviously you know got his nose to the ground here and is is taking this um incredibly seriously and professionally I, I've been saying for a while I you know I I knew that there wasn't going to be a lot um that would come out after the redactions um, in in the search warrant affidavit, but I thought there'd be more meat uh, when we got the government's response to the crazy motion for uh, a, a monitor in the um, or special master in the other case that was brought by Trump's lawyers, and we did. I think it's it's kind of chock full of stuff that you know just makes Trump and his team look like morons. One, but like complete liars uh, on the other and, you know, and, and worse criminals, um, perhaps. So, um, so I think that that was, you know, as telling as it could be, but I think, you know, his, his way of doing things, unlike Bill Barr's, and we've just seen that very recently with this disclosure of the memo um, supporting his reasoning, you know, for not um, pursuing Trump uh, for obstruction you know, he, he goes the other way and he lets the filings, you know, tell the story. And and these are filings that were provoked, you know, not by the Department of Justice, but by whether members of the press or uh, by Trump's lawyers themselves. Um, but so I think he's sticking, you know, he he's a he's a straight, you know, down the middle kind of a guy and not a lot of flourish um, or, or panache. But he, you know, he is um, 
he, I think the story uh, has been, has been told and of course more will come out, but um, it's, it's, it's coming together. And I think it doesn't look very good for the people who filed that motion and for their client. Yeah. I mean, they are unfortunately incompetent. Well, I should say, fortunately they're incompetent, but nobody, you know, I talk a lot about what happened to me on this podcast and I talk about it not because I want anybody to cry for me or, you know, what's happened to me in my station currently in life and so on. I do it because my biggest fear is that, and I've said this to you, my biggest fear is that if they could do this to me, somebody who has a pretty significant megaphone, um, who had access to all levers of government and power, if they could do this to me, just think what they can do to you. Now, you, Danya. Thank God for my wife and finding you. Um, you were responsible for me being released after the unconstitutional remand back to Otisville. And you also know I filed FOIA requests. But this is part of what I talk about in the book Revenge, which is interesting because the subpart of it is how Donald Trump weaponized the United States Department of Justice against his critics, namely myself. I spent, I don't know how many hours on the phone as you were drafting over those two weeks, those 15 days that I was additionally placed in solitary confinement. And you have a better inside seat to what really happened with the DOJ. And why I bring this question up is, as I said, Bill, um, Bill Barr did not care about the reputation of the DOJ. What they're doing now, in my opinion, through the actions with FOIA, is they are preventing me from getting to the truth. But Merrick Garland is not helping my cause. He's not helping, really, in my estimation, to rehabilitate the DOJ's reputation by hiding what was already done. If you want to make something better, you have to be transparent. You have to call Bill Barr out for what he did as the attorney general and say, hey, Fat man, guess what? What you did was illegal, and now you're going to suffer the repercussions. Not allow Bill Barr to sit there during the depositions of January 6th and say, I told Donald, I said to him, Donald, you're, you're freaking lost, all right? You lost the election. That's not, that's not right. It's not right for me, for sure, but it's not right for America. Can you give me your two sentences? Because you were so heavily involved. Oh, by the way, in that filing that they put in, I don't know if you noticed this, but there's like six or seven mentions of me uh, in the footnotes oh, yeah. of yeah. those. They have page yeah. 20, right? For example, after FBI agents executed search warrants on April 9th of 2018 at various properties belonging to Michael Cohen, who had served as private counsel to then-President Trump, Cohen's counsel sent a letter on the same day to the United States Attorney's Office requesting an opportunity to review the seized materials and contending that documents subject to attorney-client privilege should be protected from government's review. And then they go on and on. You know why my lawyer did that? Because he's competent, because he knows what he's doing. But let me go back to, to my case, because this is really what revenge is all about. It's all about how Trump weaponized, and what he's trying to do now is he's trying to play the victim. Give, give, your, give your analysis to my listeners. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I had just started um, back in private practice and um, Laura reached out to me and uh, you were one of my first cases. Um, and, 
you know, I think I had lived in a bit of a bubble at the U.S. Attorney's Office. I was also in state, uh, state prosecutor's office. And, you know, our motto was always you do the right things for the right reasons. And at, at the level that we were operating at, we really didn't think about politics at all. We certainly didn't think about, you know, um, a lot of the things that 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 came out, you know, taking weaponizing the, the Department of Justice, as you say, uh, I think correctly in this case, I, it was look, it was traumatizing for me as your lawyer to see what they what had happened to you. It was shocking. Um, you know, I remember talking to you, as you said, hours at a time talking to Laura, you know, they had unceremoniously shackled you remanded you into solitary confinement. I remember it was a heat wave when you first went back in, sweltering in your in your little cell. There was no ventilation. You know, I, I, we were deeply worried about your psyche, about your health, and about getting you out as, as, as quickly as we possibly could. And, you know, you and I always have spirited discussions and we can take different positions. The, the only kind of um, time that the two of us have ever gotten into it, but you... You just wanted to get out of there. And you said, Danya, please just, you need to file this quickly. And I said, I know I'm balancing your health and safety against getting it right. You know, unlike, you know, some other lawyers I might name, <laughs> Trump's lawyers come to mind, you know, where they neither did it quickly nor well, you know, you, you want this perfect. You have one shot with the judge. So that was, I mean, that was, that. it, it was, it was really terrifying and it was shocking to me that, this could be done. You you called yourself, you know, a political prisoner. And I and I think that's accurate. You know what happened? I'm sure your listeners know this, but, you know, you were out um, of, of prison and that was a determination made by the Bureau of Prisons for good reason. And you said that you were going to write this tell a book and they asked you not to. And you said, well, isn't that unconstitutional? And they shackled you. And that was it. You know, I, I I am a good lawyer. Thank you for saying that. No, but, you're an excellent lawyer. <laughs> but I, I will tell you, in some ways, this was an easy case because it was sui generis, as we say. It's it, it's unique. There's who would do something like that? It's not, you know, we did a lot of research. We spoke with, you know, all the federal defender's office. No one had seen a, a, a conditions of release like the ones that were presented to you and that you were required to sign on pain of remand. So, you know, I don't, I'm not, you, you speak with a certain flourish and, you know, rhetorical flair, you know, I tend to be more muted, but I will say in your case, um, it was, it, it was terrifying to think, I think your, your statement of, you know, you want to make sure this doesn't happen to other people. And I know that's why you're trying to get those documents um, I, I think that resonates because it is it, it was surreal that it could happen in this country. But then to get to that second part, you know, of what of the question you asked, um, I think there's, you know, bad conduct and then there's just negligent kind of bureaucratic conduct. I think what happened in your case, I really don't have a question that it was nefarious, malicious, vengeful, all those things. Um Trying to get the for those documents that would tell that story, you know, you're right. This administration should open it up. They should be transparent. There may be some things that, you know, need to be redacted or can't come out for, you know, plenty of good reasons. But a lot of it, you know, 
would be useful and would further, I think, the this 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 notion, right, that that this is a transparent and uh, criminal justice system or one that operates equally. And but I, but I I think probably some of what's happened is that it's gone to some low level functionary, you know, the bowels of the FOIA department, and they just don't have their act together. But as you say, you know, you've got a platform, you've got a megaphone, and you're still not able to get it. And so I don't, I don't know what the recourse, I know you have a good lawyer for that. You know, if anyone's going to get it, it's you and and, and him. But <laughs> I'm looking at what Mark, right? But look at what Mark is doing now. It just came out that he's actually representing the monkeys when the FBI and the DOJ uh, were looking into them in the 70s or something like that in the 60s. I mean, yes, I have the best. Mark Zaid is definitely the best when it comes to this. And we actually don't have a low level guy, a uh, person at FOIA. We um, it's gone all the way up. In fact, Congressman Ted Lieu, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, Congressman Steve Cohen, all of them, uh, Nancy Pelosi, at one point, they all put in requests for the Inspector General, Michael Horowitz, to open an investigation into this unconstitutional remand, making me the first political prisoner held by my own country. And if I can, here's, I want to just give you a fast story, because I don't know if I ever told it to you, but there I was laying on my bed, which is uh, smaller than a standard, in this eight by 10 dirty cell with a broken window at about 103, maybe 105 degree temperature, no ventilation. I was drenched in sweat. The flies are inside the room because the window was broken. It was missing a piece of glass. No, no cold water. The sink was filthy. The toilet didn't properly flush. It's just a disgusting disgrace. It was the EA building over at Otisville on the main side, not in the satellite camp where they were holding us. And I'm listening to NPR radio, and all of a sudden, I hear, Danya Perry has been successful in um, presenting her case before Judge Alvin K. Hellerstein, and here's the response. The court finds that respondent's purpose in transferring Cohen from release on furlough and home confinement back to custody was retaliatory in response to Cohen desiring to exercise his First Amendment rights to publish a book critical of the president and to discuss the book on social media. Accordingly, respondents are hereby enjoined from any continuing or future retaliation against Cohen for exercising his First Amendment rights. Respondents are directed to provide Cohen with a COVID-19 test at his place of detention no later than tomorrow morning, July 24th of 2020, to report the results of that test to Cohen and to his probation officer promptly when they become available and to release Cohen from custody to any member of his immediate family at the place of his detention at or before 2 p.m. tomorrow, July 24th, 2020. Now, the interesting thing, all right, is... I didn't think I was hearing it straight because my head was for blungit. It was all over the place. I was in a really bad place. I mean, a really, and you know, because we spoke, I was in a really bad place psychologically. Um, I thought that I was hearing things. I thought maybe I was dreaming. And then I switched it over on this Gilligan, uh, Gilligan's Island style radio that I had. And I was trying to get 
the radio uh, that because it was everything was wireless. The television set that constantly played, um, whether it was Fox or CNN or MSNBC. So I finally got to that. And then all of a sudden I heard it again, to which point I started screaming, you know, I yes, yes, yes. Finally, finally, you know, and I got to tell you, thank God for Alvin Hellerstein. Thank God for you. But here's the question I want to pose. As you know, I'm suing the United States government, Donald Trump, Bill Barr, who we served that asshole, you know, at his house in his underwear, uh, which I thought was kind of funny. And then the BOP and all of the low level folks that were involved in this unconstitutional remand. And yet Alison Rovner, who's representing the government, everyone except for Trump, he has his own lawyer, Alina Haba, another very, very qualified attorney, if in fact you're working on parking lots, um, you know, she's the most unqualified, the most ridiculous, you know, comments come out of her mouth that Trump was allowed to do what he wanted because he has absolute immunity. That's her argument. But my question is, how does government continue, even with that lawsuit, to fight me? They continue to fight and to make motions to dismiss and all other sorts of motions. How does something like that even happen when you have a federal court judge and everybody, including probably this judge, they all know that the purpose in transferring me was retaliatory. And as you eloquently stated, it's unprecedented in United States history. How do they keep fighting this? Why do they keep fighting this when they know what they did? Own it. I can't quite answer that question. I, I I will I will say that there is a lot of kind of institutional um, stickiness that you know we've seen this quite a few times during this new administration where you'd like to think that they would not continue with the same arguments uh, that the last Department of Justice was was putting out there. I mean this this uh, this ruling that that. That just came out. I think it was last week with respect to Bill Barr. It was the Department of Justice that had to take over the case and was making that argument that this memo shouldn't be disclosed. Now they stopped at some point. They didn't appeal it to the D.C. Court of Appeals, but you know they had to they had to keep with that argument. And in part, it's for it's for you know big picture institutional reasons. I think they don't want willy nilly you know memos being disclosed, and they need you know court sign off on that. All that, but you know, I, I do think, as I said, I think your case is unique um, and would be a great opportunity for this administration to kind of come out. I mean, as you said, the judge found, you know, the tricky part of our case was not, you know, the the conditions of release they wanted you to sign was clearly unconstitutional, right? It clearly abridged uh, com completely your First Amendment rights. But well, they were designed the solely for me. There was no federal you, right? number attached to it or anything. It was designed solely for me. But the judge had to make a factual finding there because the government was saying, well, no, that's not why we remanded him, right? We had other reasons. It was because he was you know, acting up and this and that. And the judge effectively, he didn't, he said this in a pretty roundabout, delicate way, but found that the government was lying. So, that, and, and that was a trick, you know, that was the hard part kind of, but he made that finding. And so, you know, in your case, you would think this would be an instance, particularly when you have members of Congress and, you know, prominent people who are out there saying, let's see what 
why this decision was made and what went into it so we can learn from all this and let's make sure this doesn't happen again and didn't happen to other people. You know, there's important institutional reasons, I think, for doing it in this case, not for not doing it. But, you know, I've seen this many times where there's just this is how we do things and no, we don't just turn stuff over and no, we don't waive, you know, immunity. And so it may be just this is this is it, you know, how we do it. And we're not making exceptions even for this, you know, unique one of a kind case. Well, yeah, if you're not going to do it on a unique one of a kind case, what are you going to do it on? Again, going back to the whole reputation of the DOJ. I mean, what's gone on now with the Secret Service? Is it possible that they really screwed up and erased all of the text messages from January 6th? I mean, is it a crime to delete messages in this case? Because, look, Trump loyalist Tony Ornato just retired. What do you think you know, is the connection to his culpability on or around January 6th, especially when it comes to erasing these text messages? Well, I'm not a huge believer in in these kinds of matters and coincidence, right? I mean, I think Ornato was um, supposed to testify, I believe, in, in in two days after he ended up retiring. So, is that maybe that's maybe that's just exactly you know when he wanted to go spend more time with his family, or maybe he didn't want to testify. And now I think it was an internal uh, probe, and so now he can't be required to do that. And and say, you know, it's a tremendous set of circumstances, right? That you know, right after um, January 6th, uh, you know, and what we can assume or what we know actually from some witnesses that a blizzard of of text messages that would have been highly relevant and probative, perhaps damning. We don't we don't know, but that's the point. Um, you know, we're all deleted en masse and not saved. And this is an organization that, you know, they have a training center to teach other agencies um, about cybersecurity, <laughs> and they're not able to secure their own documents and, you know, save them. And that the timing of when they were doing this, that you know, all of these things. And I think you know, maybe with the new administration, maybe they do you know change over. That could be, but you know, coincidence upon coincidence starts to look like a cover up. And, um, you know, I know there were probes on this, both January 6th, the, the committee is looking at this. I, you know, according to reports, uh, DOJ is looking at this and and they should. I mean, this is, you know, serious obstruction, um, you know, at, at you know, and that's one possibility. It could be could be more than that. Uh, could be could be not that. But it, it does look it smells funny. Let's leave it at yeah. that. It does, right? It's it smells like something's wrong. There's there's just too many coincidences. There's too many of these unprecedented once in a lifetime type of coincidences for something not to be shady here. But you know, I'm not sure. Are are you a, um, a, a, as big a fan of Fannie Willis as I am? Because I'm a big fan of I'm a big fan of hers. What do you think of her prosecution? Because we talked about Tish James, big fan. Alvin Bragg, not a fan at all. What do you think of her prosecution of the Trump election fraud case uh, going on right now in Fulton County, Georgia, you know, thus far? Because many have said, and I'm not sure that they're right, but I'm not going to disagree. Many have said that this will be the case that finally nails Trump and perhaps Lindsey Graham and Rudy Colludi Giuliani as well. Now, she doesn't seem to be as cautious as Garland, and she's clearly unafraid to act. Why do you think that? 
I agree. I mean, she's shown herself to be aggressive, you know, fearless, um, really pursuing this. And it is, you know, in, in some way, it's easier for a local prosecutor to bring this case than it is for the Department of Justice, because there's no whiff. Yes, she's a Democrat, but, you know, she's not going to be or her boss isn't, you know, a political adversary of the former president's. So uh, there's none of that, you know, kind of politicization in, in, in that extreme regard. On the other hand, it, it's a lot harder for her to do this case because, you know, if, if DOJ were to bring the case, they could issue subpoenas to anyone, anywhere, and they would be compelled to come before the grand jury in whatever district. They could do it in the District of Columbia, but they, they could do it in Georgia. They could do it wherever there's proper venue. Um, she has some obstacles there. We've seen, I, I think, one target uh, or or one um, recipient of a subpoena was able to quash it um, because there's some you know question about. It. I think she contributed money to his opponent, or I forget. There's some you know local politics uh, reason, and then others are fighting it for various reasons, um, and out of state ones you know are harder to get for local prosecutors. So. I don't, you know, I think it's going to be a tougher case. She does not have all the tools at her disposal. She she certainly doesn't have the resources of the federal government. So she's, you know, the scrappy um, local prosecutor is out there doing something that, as far as we can tell, you know, Garland does not, even though he would have jurisdiction here. There's no question, you know, that this false elector scheme or, you know, trying to push, um, a, a local uh, politician or state politician, you know, to to help, you know, the former president with the election would, would of course, be a federal crime as well. Um, but, you know, she's out there doing it. And, um, you know, so I don't I don't know if there's going to be some kind of turf war if 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 Merrick Garland is looking at it. But but, you know, from what we can tell from our vantage point, it's just her in the arena and um you know she's 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 pursuing it but i think it's going to take it's going to take some time given all the legal challenges that she's facing that you know i think the department of justice might might not be it's amazing because once again we have a recording we have documentary evidence that if it was you if it was me if it was anybody else other than this ass clown we would already be charged. We'd be indicted and probably behind bars. Look, I went, I went away simply because I paid a porn star to pull the president's mushroom pecker. That's really the only charge that should have existed. The rest of it was all bullshit, which again, I go through point by point in revenge. And I'm going to have to force you to read it, you know, to be honest with you when it comes out, because I definitely need your take on it. But Danya, the hour on mea culpa, and I say this on all the shows, they go by very, very quickly. You believe it, right? I have one last question for you. Now, Biden said in a speech yesterday that, and I'm going to quote, Democrats have become the real party of law and order. And he claims that we are still fighting for the soul of our nation, which I take to mean our democracy is at stake. Now, despite my run-in with law enforcement, I have the ultimate respect for what they do and who they are. Law enforcement has been under fire from Trump supporters. Lindsey Graham is calling for violence in the streets. 
What's your take on where we are as a nation? I mean, do you think we'll ever return to civility? And do you personally fear the violence aimed at law enforcement will actually happen? <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm an optimist by nature, um, almost Pollyannish in some ways. And I don't know about this one. I do think it's a very difficult time. We're at an inflection point. I think we'll see what happens in the midterms and then in 2024. But a lot of the candidates that have been out there and the statements that they've made, and yes, this anti-law enforcement push, um, you know, whereas this was a party who, you know, traditionally has backed the blue, right? And now there, there's violence aimed at FBI agents and, you know, members of the, the other party. And I mean, it, it is, it's a scary, dark time. I, I think, you know, it, it can be that there's, there's a shift given, you know, the extremism uh, that's going on and that, you know, there's some indicators that the tide is turning. Um, you know, I don't think we're really going to know until November and, and then maybe not until November, uh, two years later. Um, so I'd love to say, you know, I, paint a rosy picture and say this is all going to be okay. Um, I, I don't know. It's 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 been really, you know, I said, I used the word terrifying before when I was talking about your remand and what they did to you. And, you know, a lot of the talk and a lot of the the, the conduct, I mean, you know, no one could look, I think, well, I, I'm wrong about this, actually, some many people have looked at the events of January 6th and not been horrified or have now normalized it, um, rationalized it, justified it. Um, but I think it, that's that's hard to do. You have to try really hard. And, um, you know, I, I'm I, so again, maybe this is another one. You asked me a question much earlier in the hour, where which I sidestepped here. I, I'll just say very honestly, you know, I hope it I hope it changes and I hope we can, you know, come together again as a as a, as a country. But um, I, do, I don't know. And I truly believe that the violence is coming. Uh, I believe that these maggots are so indoctrinated somehow into this cult of Donald Trump that they will go after law enforcement, um, FBI, and so on. And if I was Congress right now, and they do still have the ability to pass it, if in fact that you go after an FBI agent, if you go against law enforcement, and you you injure, you, especially if you kill them, it should be the death penalty. Period. End of story. You know, put an end to this notion that they can get out one, two, three. The justice system is, you know, it's not going to process. We've seen what's happened with January 6th, folks. All of these folks are now going to be spending time in prison while Trump sits at Mar-a-Lardo stuffing his fat ass with ice cream and hamburgers. It's really wrong. And I hope that these people who are thinking about doing bad things actually think twice. But Danya, my savior, you're the best. Um, really appreciate you joining me. Uh, hope to see you soon. I still owe you that lasagna dinner. Yes. So, <laughs> yes, um, wish you uh, obviously all, all the best. Thank you from the bottom of my family. Thanks you from the bottom of, um, of our hearts, you know, for doing what you did and for continuing to do what you do. So thank you. And thanks for joining us today on Mea Culpa. And now for today's Mea Culpa. 
According to a late August NBC poll, democracy and the cost of living are now what voters are most concerned about. I posit that the cost of living won't matter much if we are living under a dictatorship. Dictatorships, fascism, authoritarianism, they all run on pretty much the same ideology. That people must obey completely and not be allowed the freedom to act as they wish. So no more free and fair elections, equal rights, that's all fucking gone. And that freedom Republicans love to crow about does not exist under a fascist dictator. Whereas a democracy is the opposite. It's the belief in freedom and equality between people in which power is either held by elected representatives or directly by the people itself. In the United States, our democracy is supposed to be for the people, by the people, all the people, not just the majority. The concerns of the minority in our democracy are equally important and addressed. But right now in America, thanks in large part to Mitch fucking McConnell, the minority rules by obstruction in Congress and by dominance by the 6-3 ultra-conservative Supreme Court. These are the folks that are trying to control women's bodies and decide who we all marry. They are trying to rewrite American history, to ban books and bring Christian theology into public schools. They love guns, and for the most part, the minority that rules us today is made up of white men. White men, then folks like Clarence Thomas and Amy Handmaid Tale Barrett, and the minority is authoritarian in nature. No longer conservative, I mean that shit fucking sailed with Roe. No free society forces women to give birth, I don't care what they say. Or votes against voters' rights, which every single Republican in Congress did this year. They voted against voters' rights. The primary principle of our democracy is that we all get to vote. Unless, of course, they take that right away from you. If they intimidate poll workers, then what happens? Poll workers quit, and then they take over. If they remove ballot boxes and polling stations from poor and minority neighborhoods, well, they win. So when Joe Biden talks about fighting for the soul of our nation, fighting for democracy, what he really means is we have to fight to get it back. The authoritarians have wrestled two branches of government to the ground. Joe Biden stands between us and them. The only way we get democracy back is to vote them out. The consequences for sitting out in the upcoming election will be profound, unless, of course, we move in unison to defeat the Republicans and take back our democracy. If not every aspect of American life will suffer, and first and foremost, the economy. The economy will suffer here as it does under most authoritarian rule. I mean, just ask Hungary, Brazil, Turkey, and Venezuela. The shift away from democracy tanked in those economies. It broke the soul of their nations. So let's all try to avoid a similar fate. Hear what Biden is trying to tell us. It's all on the line now, folks. So make sure you get out there and vote. It's time to fight. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. Written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. 
Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. This is me.